We are in our worship series. And uh, as you see from the slide there, if this is your first time, our worship series has been a collection of uh, short sermons, if you will, or sometimes longer sermons, that I've said you can stick in your shoe. And the idea there is, as you remember, that every now and then if you ever get a pebble in your shoe, until you deal with that pebble, you're going to be walking with a limp, right? And so my prayer is, in my own pastoral way, that these sermons on worship are just like little pebbles that you can't get out of your heart. And then until you deal with these, what has been pretty simple and singular principles on the topic of worship for the last few weeks, until you deal with them, uh, my prayer is that you can't sleep at night. Is that all right? I think worship's that important. I've called it our eternal occupation. If in heaven it is the one thing that you can guarantee we'll be doing, it is, it is bowing down and worshiping the creator of all the universe, you, you better believe that getting it right now, getting a proper understanding of worship now should be a priority. And so that's what we're doing. We're in the middle of a collection of short sermons on worship that uh, I hope stick in your crawl. Today we're going to talk about preparation in regard to worship. Let's face it, preparation is important in so many things in life. And yet we are often too in a hurry or too lazy to make proper preparations, aren't we? If you've ever tried to paint anything around your house, you understand what I'm talking about here. You ever done this? Uh, I, I don't mind painting. I just hate the preparation. But what I know after doing a good bit of painting, that it saves me a whole lot of trouble in the end if I do the preparation up front. And by preparation, I mean sometimes you've got to take things apart. Sometimes you've got to sand stuff down. Because if you just jump in there like I want to do and start painting right now so I can see the result right now, guess what? You've got to do it over to begin with. So you've got to tape stuff off. You've got to take stuff apart. You've got to move stuff out of the way so paint doesn't fall on it. There's a lot of preparation that goes into painting. And we don't like all that. We just want to jump straight to it. But guess what? You've got to do it. And after a few times of trying to take the shortcuts, you realize in life that, very often, it's not worth it. Worship requires preparation. Do you know that? Put another way, preparation is essential to worship. Many of us are, uh, frankly, better at procrastination than we are at preparation, aren't we? That's me. I'm a master at procrastination. And be that as it may, worship is a, has a requirement in its preparation. Let me put it in the form of a question. Maybe this sticks with you a little better. Do we really think that we can show up on Sunday mornings, fall into a congregation ten minutes late, having given no thought to what we're about to do, and expect that something, anything of meaning is going to happen? Or more importantly, that God is going to be blessed by our haphazard, half-hearted efforts. Do we really think that's going to In John 4, the text that we've been looking at, Jesus encounters the woman at the well. And he's talking to her about salvation, and she wants to divert the conversation. She wants to talk about worship. And what kind of worship is right, and what kind of worship is acceptable. And her people, the Samaritans, they worship over here, she says. And where she was talking to Jesus, she could look over and see Mount Gerasim, a real place in, in geography, by the way. This is not a a make-believe story, she could look over at Mount Gerasim and say to Jesus, our people say that we worship there, and that's the right place. But your people, and Jesus was of 
Jewish descent. Your people, the Jews, not the Samaritans, you say that you are to worship in Jerusalem. So what's right? And so she takes this idea and she tries to divert the conversation, but Jesus, being the master teacher, he, he factors it right into his own conversation. And so he, he entertains the thought. And long story short, the Samaritans believed that their worship was correct, and the Jews believed that their worship was correct. Let me tell you about Samaritan worship. Samaritan worship was the mountaintop experience, and it's a good illustration that she uses. We worship on this mountain. The Samaritans were very sincere in their worship. They were very demonstrative in their worship. They were wholehearted in their worship. Today, we would say that they're the guys with hands raised. They would be jumping around dancing. I mean, they put their, their whole body into it. The Jews, on the other hand, their worship was down off the mountain. It was reserved for the temple and the temple only. Their worship, in Jesus' words, would be the worship that's in truth. They used the rites. They used the rituals. It was very structured. It was formal, if you will. And Jesus tells her, listen, one or the other is not where it's at. There's a time coming and it's here because he was there. When true worshipers, who the Father is seeking, by the way, as you remember from a couple weeks ago, true worshipers will worship not just in spirit, as you've been worshiping, wholehearted, sincere as it may be, but they'll also worship in truth. And this presented a problem for her, because she is among the people who simply worship sincerely, but without the truth. And Jesus says that the Jews have been given the law and the prophets. We have the truth. Sincerity on the one hand, truth on the other. You can go wrong in both cases, right? And this is what worship boils down to for many of our modern conversations, doesn't it? Well, they get a little too excited for me. Well, they seem a little too dull and ritualistic for me. They seem to go by the book too much. They seem to go a little too I mean, that's the conversation that's been going on since the woman at the well. But Jesus says worship must be not just in spirit to her, but it's got to be founded in truth. It's got to be founded in truth. True worship engages the mind. Today we're going to talk about what it means to be worshipers in truth. Next week we'll come back to the idea of spirit. Because Jesus is going to challenge this Samaritan that she is lacking some truth. Now let's talk a little bit about what this means. True worship engages the mind. It's not just a condition you, you come up with. It's not just an emotion you stir up. It's not just what uh, one pastor called a glandular activity. Alistair Begg says that very often when we think about worship, we practice it in just this glandular way that if things in our DNA come about and mix up just the right way, then worship happens just all of the sudden. It just occurs upon us. And he says worship is not a glandular situation. It's not something that you just catch. It's not just something that happens to us without any thought, without any preparation, without any understanding of truth. In Christianity, we don't mention things anymore like duty. We don't mention the importance of commitment 
in Christian life anymore. We don't, we don't tell folks, or we're not supposed to as church leaders, that they should be at something because it's important that they fulfill that commitment. We're in an age of what you might call in our modern churches an age of sensation. Pastor, uh, I don't feel like it is a common response. Are you going to be at prayer this month? Ah, we'll see how I feel. It's based on our senses. It's based on our glandular situation. You get it? Are you going to come to worship in prayer before service? Ah, I'll see how I feel, Pastor. Are you going to be at church this week? I don't know that I'm really feeling it. Now, don't just put this off on the younger generation, because I hear it across generations. As a result, we get mindless and meaningless worship. It's important to know that worship, folks, engages the mind. It engages the mind. And the mind requires this conscious activity. We can't worship, just to put it simply, we can't worship without thinking. It doesn't just happen. You don't just get the right mix of a situation, of a setting, and then worship occurs. Worship is not just in spirit, it's also in truth. We need truth as a foundation, and that takes our minds to engage. God stirs us up to worship, but it's through our minds and into our heart that he does so. Worship was in spirit for the woman at the well and her Samaritan people. But Jesus points her to worship that would engage the mind and confront truth. You can worship as sincere as you want, but you can be sincerely wrong, right? Remember what we said, that your worship can be directed and targeted at the wrong target. You could have the wrong focus in your worship. And that happens all the time. We are all worshipers whether we know it or not. Whether we claim to be worshipers or not, we're all worshiping something. And remember what we said, God is not indifferent as to who we worship. He will require that we worship the one and true God. We don't have options. It's not an elective sport, and we don't get to choose who we worship. He will be worshipped. Worship worship isn't what happens when you choose just the right lighting, just the right temperature in the room, just the right position in your seat, hands raised, not raised, on your knees, not on your knees, not just the right medley of songs. Listen, worship starts in the mind with the truth about God and the truth about us. Then our hearts are affected, and acceptable worship, both in spirit and in truth, comes from it. Now let me just let me just say here, uh, as I make a little bit of a turn in this message, let me just say that um, just as unacceptable, uh, just as unacceptable is worship that is stuck in heartlessness and ritual. Full of truth, but devoid of any emotion or sincerity of the heart. Um, Put another way, uh, I'm not saying that we just need to err on the side of truth. But I am saying that we can't err on the side of sincerity and spirit without truth, without that foundation. We're going to come back to what worship and spirit means. But if we get our aim wrong, it doesn't matter how spiritual our worship is. Okay. Before I speak to you about worship and spirit, I'm going to... I'm going to finish up here on truth. So don't get lost here as I make this turn. Preparation is essential to worship in truth. If worship must be in spirit and in truth, then we must prepare ourselves mentally 
if we hope anything to come out of our hearts. Alright? So that was the uh, that was the foundation. Let me give you some practical pebbles. These are the things that, uh, and I brought a bunch of rocks today, because there's probably more than one that you're going to have to stick in your heart this morning. Here's the first. When it comes to worship, intentional, prepared worship, Saturday night matters to Sunday morning. Saturday night matters to Sunday morning. And that means what you watch on TV, Saturday, matters to worship on Sunday morning. Um, Very often, if the Holy Spirit doesn't have my ear and I'm watching TV, my wife becomes the megaphone of the Holy Spirit. Any other guys that that's the case for? And she will yell from the other room, Did you hear what they said? No. And very often I don't even hear the foul language. I don't, I don't hear something inappropriate. And so my wife becomes the Holy Spirit. I hope that's true for all of us. Does it matter what, what you're watching last night? Or is that separate from what's going to happen here this morning? I don't think so. Put another way, sin on Saturday will certainly affect your worship on Sunday. There's a passage in the Gospels where Jesus speaks to this. In the midst of a greater teaching, he says, Listen, you've brought your offering to the altar. You've brought your offering here as an act of worship but you've got something going on in your heart that you need to deal with. Leave your offering here. Go away. Deal with what you need to deal with. In that case, it was an offense with a, with a brother in Christ. Deal with that and then come back and your offering will be received. But until you go back and deal with what you tried to drag into the throne room of God, your worship becomes unacceptable, no matter how good your worship looks right here on the table. Repentance has to be a part. Confession has to be a part of your preparation for worship. I mean, you've got to think to yourself before you show up here on Sunday morning to congregate, to worship together. Is there anything, God? Is there anything that's going to cause not just my worship to be impaired, but it's going to slow down the worship of the congregation? Or did you just drag it into the altar with everything else that you plan to offer up to God and hope that altogether it's acceptable. Or maybe hope that he won't notice at all. How late you stay up Saturday matters. My pastor in high school, by the way, uh, when he would start preaching this sort of way, uh, he'd say, I'm done preaching now, I'm going to go to meddling. So, I've entered the meddling part of the message. All right, Saturday matters. Staying up as late as you want on Saturday night and then falling out of bed too late to get ready and get your kids ready to be here on Sunday morning, does that matter to the quality of our worship here? It does. Does it just affect you? No, it doesn't just affect you. It affects us all. If your Saturday plans conflict with your Sunday commitments, then guess what? Saturday needs to be adjusted. It amazes me how I hear from people about what went on Saturday that now has caused Sunday to not be what it ought to be. And that seems to be okay. Or at least the excuse seems to be acceptable. The problem is that it it shouldn't be acceptable to us. It shouldn't. I posted on Facebook uh, yesterday 
what I call the random thought on Sunday morning worship. And here's the random thought I put out there. If we had the same level of commitment or initiative on the job as we do in our church family, would we get a raise or a pink slip? Let me say that again because maybe you didn't swallow it. If we had the same level of commitment on our job, or if we had the same level of initiative on our job that we do among our church family, do you think you'd get a raise on the job or you'd get a pink slip? And uh, my wife pointed out a couple hours later that I only had like two responses. A couple people liked it. That indicates a few things to me. Number one, I'm not very popular. Number two, the notion itself to most of my friends on Facebook is probably irrelevant. And it is. As I begin to think of through my friends on Facebook, there are many of them that probably read that and said, I have no idea what he's talking about. And that's okay. That's not as troubling to me as those who would read it. And it is relevant, but it's too convicting. I wonder if we treated any of our other commitments or even relationships the way we do our commitment to God or to His church family. I wonder how that would go. I know when I serve my weekends in the military... And those of you who've been in the military, that level of commitment or initiative, it doesn't fly, does it? Why is it that we we let it go here? Those of you who played sports, if you had that level of commitment or initiative or ambition when you were on a team, do you think your teammates would have put up with it, let alone your coach? But this is a volunteer thing here, right? I mean... We're not kicking anybody off the team, are we? I toy with the idea sometimes. Anybody want to be the example for the rest of the body? So that we might grasp once again the weight of the thing. I mean, isn't the worship of our King, our Creator, and the love of His family of more importance than your job, that team that you were on, any of those other things that you might compare it to. But yet we wouldn't dare, we wouldn't dare live out the way we do. Here, out there. How about Sunday morning? If Saturday night matters, what about Sunday morning? Do you plan for Sunday mornings? Do you plan for Sunday mornings? You know, sometimes people tell me, Pastor, I just wish your sermons would be a little more applicable. Here you go. I can't get any more practical. Do you plan for Sunday mornings? I know it's not easy. Sunday mornings for this pastor and pastor's wife and our kids, it's not easy. It's not easy. Throughout the week, though, we prepare for school and work. We set out our clothes. We prepare lunches. We set the alarm. We iron our clothes. We wake up early enough. But for many of us, making it to church on time is a matter of how we decide we feel that morning. Let's see how we feel in the morning. Do we have anything better to do this morning? If not, okay, let's go to church. Was there something that we didn't get done during the previous week that we decided we would confiscate God's time and God's church family's time to replace it with what we need to do because we didn't do it earlier that week? Or maybe there's something that we know is coming in the week to come that we're going to confiscate God's time ahead of time and replace it because, well, we got this, we got a busy week coming. 
you'd laugh at some of the reasons people volunteer to me for their absence. <laughs> you'd laugh until you realize that some of the some of the reasons are your very own. And it wouldn't be funny. Let me make a suggestion. Why don't you do whatever you think is expected of the pastor? Not just this pastor, but any pastor you might imagine in any church. Because in frustration, I often wonder to myself when I get some of these reasons. I wonder what, what would be said if I gave that same reason. I just didn't really feel like it this morning. I didn't really feel like getting ready for the message. I just didn't really feel like getting up a little earlier and helping get the kids ready. Or I just didn't really. I had a long week, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit this one out. Or I got, a, I got a big week coming. Do you know that the the point of the standard of the pastor is so that he is a model to the congregation. I don't have the standard that you hold in your mind just because I'm a pastor and pastors are to be held to that sort of standard. I have the standard that you hold me to in your mind. I have the expectations that I have in your mind only because I am designed to be the representative model of how you are to live. And so whatever you expect of me, guess what? That should be a reflection of what you expect from yourself. If the excuse you plan to give wouldn't sound right, on my lips, whatever you think I should do or be or show up for, guess what? Maybe that's what you should do or maybe that's who you should be. Maybe that's the kind of thing you should show up for. And um, listen, I, I'm not looking for rituals here. I'm not looking for uh, you to live your Christian life out of mere duty or just pure responsibility. That's not Christianity. And if you've been around here a while, you know that I'm not about just legalism and ritual. If it were 10 degrees cooler, I'd be in flip-flops today. We do all that we can around here to get rid of the pretense. We're not just looking for robots who follow rules. That's not the error we want to go to. But we do need to make some sort of effort to guard our Sunday mornings. Are you making any effort? Find ways to prepare yourself and your family. Um, Sunday mornings, I try. My wife's here. I can't lie. I don't always, I'm not always the best help I need to be. But I realize, especially as pastor and having other responsibilities on Sunday mornings, I try not to wait to have all my stuff to pile on Sunday mornings so that I can't help, so that I can't help with breakfast or get the kids motivated to get dressed. We've got, to, we've got to make that a priority. Do, do we make that a, a priority? Do you prepare Sunday mornings in any form or fashion? I mean, as you go through the, your mind, is there any way that you get ready for what you do here? Or do you just show up here, trickle in five minutes after 11, and expect worship to happen? Can I tell you one of the simple and you know, almost silly things that I do? From, uh, for the two-and-a-half-mile drive that I have over here, I've kind of made it a habit that I'll turn on, I think it's 103.3, the beat. And uh, on Sunday mornings, it's their spiritual time, and so they have, they have black gospel music playing. And because we're typically not a black gospel church, uh, I get my black gospel fix on the way here. I use that as my time of preparation for worship. Uh, what happened one morning was, 
this is extra, you don't have to pay for this, is that um, once that spiritual hour is over, I went back out to my car, and one of our, uh, one of our older gentlemen had, was at the car, and he was talking to me, and I went ahead and started the car, and my radio came on blaring, and it was Kirk Franklin when I left, and when I came back, it was like T-Pain or something like that, right? And, uh, and so I'm, I'm looking at this guy, and he's looking at me, and he's in his 60s, and I'm like, what do, you, what do you say? Just turn it down, and that's how a pastor prepares for worship, apparently. Find a way to prepare for worship. Turn the TV off. Turn on some worship music while you're getting ready. Find a way. Do you know why we started worship in prayer? The 30 minutes that we've given up at the beginning, we've kind of bumped the typical worship to 11 to 12, maybe a few minutes after 12. From 10.30 to 11, 10.30 used to start our regular worship, but we added in another portion. We call it worship in prayer. We don't just call it prayer. We call it worship in prayer. Now, that's a, that's a whole other lesson in and of itself. It's worship in prayer. Why did we do that? Two main reasons why we added that 30 minutes of time. Reason number one, so that we'd have more time for prayer. Is that needed? Absolutely. Reason number two is so that you would have some time to prepare. So that if you hadn't already prepared and you just bebopped in here off the street, you're not just coming in here and expecting worship to, have, uh, to happen. You've got 30 minutes to get your heart right, to get your mind right. Even if you don't have sin to confess, you can't just come in from everything that's going out there and expect congregational worship just to happen. We have to engage our mind in preparation. And when we first started this, I can't tell you how many people, how many, how many families, how many individuals came to me and said, that's such a cool thing. I love that we had that time. I don't feel like I'm just dropping the kids off and rushing in and I get time to just kind of sit and maybe even decompress, process my week. I, I get to think through what do I need to give to the Lord this morning and, and maybe I get to just, just exhale before worship begins so I'm not just walking right in and Ricky's standing up and we're all going praying and singing. I have a little time. And I was, I was very encouraged until that wore off after about three weeks. And most weeks we have about four people in here because apparently we don't need to prepare for worship. We don't need any extra prayer. Now, mind you, I was the one that said when we introduced this, that, hey, listen, I don't expect you to be in here. If you read the little paper, it says come in, go out. If you want to come in for the last ten minutes of it, that's fine. If you don't want to come in at all, if God, if God wants you out there just smiling and fellowshipping and shaking hands and drinking coffee and eating donuts, that's cool. I'm not after the ritual. But after a while, I'm looking around when it's me and three other people in here and worship in prayer and saying, why did we add this extra 30 minutes? Apparently, no one needs to prepare. Apparently, nobody is longing for an extra time of congregational worship, even if it is in, in silence or prayer. Here's another thing. We often have critiques of the churches and denominations that are of high liturgy. I'll pick on the Catholics, for example. And many of you come from a Catholic background. But generally, denominations as modern as ours, we might look at more of those ritualistic, formal denominations like the Catholics and call them cold or dry or dead even. I'd suggest that we borrow back some of the attitude of reverence and awe for Sunday morning worship. In truth, our modern churches have probably tossed the baby out with the bathwater on that one. We got rid of the formal for the casual. And I'm all about the casual. 
But don't be fooled into thinking that somehow casual equates to real in terms of worship. It does not. And very often when we go to the other side of the ditch and go all casual and all informal, guess what? We lose things like reverence and awe. And we can't. I'm not suggesting that uh, you come to Cornerstone as if you were entering La Notre Dame. I've been there. It was an amazing place. I was in awe of the grandeur. I was in awe of those who must have built that place for the glory of God, I hope. It, it, it did something to raise the spirits and to raise my mind towards the glory of God. But at the same time, I sensed, as I did in many parts of France, this coldness, this lack of spirit. So I'm not suggesting that we treat this place like, like that. that that's, that's not the answer either. But I would say that we, we, we can't have this attitude that Sunday morning worship will happen in spirit and in truth when we trickle in whenever we feel like it, giving no thought to what is supposed to be going on in this place together. We can't be, to put it another way, we can't be mindless in our worship. We need preparation. Give thought to why we gather. Give thought to why we gather. While I'm on the subject, give careful thought to the songs you sing. Um, most of the time I'm up here because my goal is not to just watch you. That's uh, When I come, I want to worship. And so most of the time you'll find me up here and usually I have to make an announcement or something. And it just makes sense for, for me to be close. But every now and then I'll, I'll stay in the back during worship so that I, could, so that I can watch. And I'll not, I'll not pretend to say that I can watch individuals and tell you whether they are genuine worshipers or not. But there is something to be said for the countenance of a man or a woman's face, for the posture of a man or a woman's body, while we're singing certain songs, um, it matters. I mean, to be singing some of these songs that we that we sing, I'm going to worship you forever. I'm going to worship you with your hands in your pocket, just kind of looking around. He doesn't normally sit there. He normally sits over there. I'm going to worship you forever. I wonder where we're going to lunch today. That seems sometimes to be our attitude. Give thought to the songs you sing. Just because they fall off your lips does not mean that the Lord counts them as worship. You know, one of the reasons we don't do an offertory, maybe if this is your first time you notice that we didn't pass the plate around to get your money. Um, there's a few reasons, but one of the reasons is that we, we wanted to eliminate that halftime of the service. You know what I mean? By halftime? That you get through that first 20 minutes, all right, we stood, we sang, we clapped a little bit, I was good, everybody sit down, all right, now it's the offertory, it's halftime, they pass the plate, pull out the candy, get the kids straight, settle into our seat, we're moving into the fourth quarter, I'm going to listen to this guy, try and stay awake for the rest of the game, here we go, I can do this. 
one pastor said, that we have become spectators in an activity where there is only one spectator, and that is supposed to be God. Are you a spectator in worship? Or have you prepared your heart and mind in such a way that you are an active participant, worshiping before the one spectator? Sunday morning worship is the sum total of your individual hearts when you come into this place. It's the overflow on Sunday of what has happened and is happening in your life Monday through Saturday. The quality of your worship is in direct proportion to the quality of your worship the rest of your days of the week. This may come as a surprise to you, but the quality of our congregational worship I truly believe has more to do with you and your preparation than it has to do with any of the things we prepare in the program of service. It's not the quality of the band. It's not the quality of our song choice. It's not the quality of our musicians. It's not the quality of the singers. It's not how well they transition. Although we do everything we can to try and make those things not better or not even more entertaining, the conversations we have about song choice and transitions and, and, and playing it the right way and, and all of that have most to do with getting out of your way. Anytime I talk to our guys about a transition or maybe these songs fit together better or any of that stuff related to any of the program of our worship, specifically music, it has to do with not being a distraction to your encounter with God. Not that we could somehow manufacture worship for you, but how many of us come into worship expecting that worship is going to be handed to us in the program? And worship is dependent on how well they do their job. And I might jump into it. The truth is that the quality of our worship has more to do with the quality of your day-to-day -day worship. Don't depend on the program to create worship for you. Worship is yours to be had. Bring your worship. Listen to me now, and I'll be done. Bring your worship to this place as your offering, as it were. Lay it at the feet of your Creator. Don't come empty-handed when you come to this congregation. Bring a fully prepared heart and mind. And be sure nothing has gotten in the way. Amen? Why don't you pray with me?